Hey, I guess what time it is, everybody? It is finally Christmas time again. And I say finally because it seems like everything starts building up to Christmas somewhere right after the 4th of July now, doesn't it? And now that we do have a Hobby Lobby in town, we might be able to buy Christmas decorations year-round, which is pretty sweet. Some people might think that's awesome and be excited about that. Others are saying bah humbug to these sorts of things. But... Thanksgiving has officially come and gone, and so it's definitely that time of year. We can now officially begin celebrating the birth of our Savior. I'm looking forward to the next four Sundays as we plan to go through the first two chapters in the Gospel of Matthew in a sermon series titled, The Birth of the King. The Birth of the King. But before we can start that, As you already know from the beginning of the service, we have one more passage to cover from the Gospel of John in chapter 12. We've been working through John uh, chapters 5 through 12 over the last four or five months, uh, covering much of, if not all, of Jesus' public ministry. And as we uh, prepare to dig into this last public address that Jesus gave, uh, let's go ahead and get a little background from the time just after Jesus' birth, uh, when Jesus would have been only 40 Days old. So we're going to start today in Luke chapter 2, Luke chapter 2, verses 22 through 35. And this is Jesus at just 40 days old. And he won't be saying anything in this passage, of course, being only 40 days old. But Luke 2, 22 says, When the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Uh, Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, uh, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit to the temple. And when the parents brought in the child, Jesus, to do for him according to the custom of the law, he, Simeon, took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father, Jesus' father and mother, so this is Joseph and Mary, marveled at what was said about him. And why not, right? Salvation, revelation, glory. All sounds pretty amazing, doesn't it? But then Simeon had more to say. Uh, Something that let Mary know that not everything was going to be so wonderful. Not everything was going to be so happy. Verse 34 in Luke 2, And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also. So that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. There would be salvation. There would be revelation. There would be glory in and through the Son of God. And many would rise. 
and many would fall. And the Son of God, the hope of Israel, would be opposed, revealing the true condition of the hearts of the people. And this is where we find ourselves now back in John chapter 12. Jesus has been hailed as the coming Messiah in his sort of but maybe not so triumphal entry, only to then be rejected when he informed the crowd that his glorification would be inaugurated through his death and that the role of his followers was to come and die with him, to follow him. And the people's response, remember? What kind of son of man are you? What kind of son of man are you? Uh, He wasn't the king of kings that they were looking for. He was certainly not the king of kings that they were hoping for. And so they did not believe. And and so now we get to see the Apostle John give this official declaration in verse 37 of John 12. Uh, This is the outcome of Jesus' public earthly ministry. You take all of John 5 through John 12, and here's, here's the outcome. Verse 37. Though he had done so many signs before them, In their sight, which they did not deny. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. And the way this was written in the Greek, it could read, they still would not believe in him. They actively remained in their unbelief. Remember, it doesn't matter how much you know, it doesn't matter how smart you are, or how good of a debater you are, even if you were able to do miracles, even if someone should be raised from the dead, if people do not want to believe, they still will not believe. Uh, But this is not the point of this verse. The point here is, even when it would make total sense to believe in Jesus, people didn't believe. And so we are left, in this context, we are left to ask, why? Uh, Why didn't the people believe? And and we aren't asking this in the why didn't they want to believe kind of a way. We're, We're asking about also purpose. Meaning, what was the purpose of their unbelief? What was the purpose of it? And we're going to see in the next verses that not only did these people not want to believe by their own desire, by their own will, but that God also had a purpose for their unbelief. Their unbelief was all part of his sovereign plan. It was for a purpose by God's design. And so John writes, they still did not believe in him, in Jesus Christ, verse 38 so that, and we're going to see a lot of those kinds of words, therefores, and so that's, so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. This is from Isaiah 53, 1. It says, Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And the answer to that would seem to be few. And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been Revealed, And the arm of the Lord would be a figure of speech meaning the power of God. It's the power of God. So Israel had seen the arm of the Lord revealed through Jesus' miracles. Verse 39, therefore, so continuing this logical progression, therefore, they could not believe. They would not believe by their own choice in verse 37, and now they could not believe. Inability. In verse 39, for, 
So we had so that, therefore, for, again, Isaiah said, now this is Isaiah 6.10, and he says these things about Israel. He, God, has blinded their eyes. God has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart. God has hardened their heart. Lest, so that, therefore, for, lest, they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn or repent. Repentance means turning and I would heal them. And remember, what kind of healing is this? We see this healing here. We wonder what it might be. Is this physical healing? And the answer to that is no. It's much more than that. This is spiritual. Uh, The one who is lost and dead in their sin being brought to life. So it sounds like like God is hardening the hearts and blinding the eyes of the Israelites so that they won't, or lest they be saved. And by the way, isn't this a wonderful description of conversion? Of our salvation? We, we see, we understand, we turn, and we are healed. We see the truth of the gospel from the word of God, Christ's sinless sacrifice in our place on the cross for our sin. We understand with our hearts in the inner man, Romans 10.10 10 says, for with the heart one believes and is justified. We turn in repentance. We call Jesus Lord and therefore begin to show our faith by our works, James 2. And we are healed. We don't heal ourselves by good deeds or good motives or good vibes or positive thinking. We are healed. We receive it. For by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing it is the gift of God, not a result of works that no one may boast. Ephesians 2. In verse 41, Isaiah said these things because... Why did Isaiah say these things? Because he saw his glory and delighted in it, by the way. Isaiah, Isaiah was amazed by and delighted in the glory of God. And he therefore, the end of the verse, spoke of him. He saw his glory and spoke of him. So let's take a few moments to recap what we've seen so far. Even though Jesus did all these miracles, the people would not believe in him as their Messiah, as the Christ. And we might say it was a good thing, too, because that was God's plan. God made it so that a people who wouldn't believe couldn't believe. And everything was working out perfectly. Scratching our heads yet? Are we confused? That's okay. That's okay. Let's let's look at these prophecies from Isaiah that that John's quoting to help us out. Uh, We need to look at these in context uh, to see what God's purpose was in all of this. Uh, So first, Isaiah 6. I'm going to go ahead and turn there with me to Isaiah chapter 6. I'm going to start in verse 1. And it's not a long chapter. We're going to go ahead and plow right through it. Isaiah 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe was filled, his his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, so these are angels. Each had six wings, and two he covered his face, and two he covered his feet, with two he flew. And one called to another, saying, Holy, Holy, 
holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me. Good answer, right? For I am lost For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And this is Jesus, by the way. John 12 is going to tell us this. This is Jesus. And then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with his tongs uh, from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. You might say, by the coal? Did the coal atone for his sin? Or was that a representation of something else? Let's go with that. What atoned for Isaiah's sin? And the answer is the same thing, the same one who atoned for yours. That's Christ. Verse 8, And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And then I said, this is Isaiah, he says, Here I am. Send me. And he said, go and say to this people. And this is another one of those, what in the world are we about to read here? And we'd think all these wonderful things are going to happen, and they are wonderful, but maybe not the way we would think. Go say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, their ears heavy and blind, their eyes lest they see with their ears and hear... I'm sorry, they don't, you never can do that. Lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. That's what we just saw in John 12, that quote right there. And then we say, why? Or how long? And Isaiah asked us, verse 11, I said, how long, O Lord? And he said... Until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste and the Lord removes people far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. So it doesn't sound good. And though a tenth remain in it, a remnant would be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains. Only the stump remains when it's felled. The holy seed is its stump. Uh, These are the remnant of Israel that we even read about in the book of Revelation. This is all of Isaiah 6. So when we see John quoting this verse from Isaiah 6, we need to think about all of this as we, as we read through this text. Uh, so God accomplishes the judgment of Israel. The last half of chapter 6 was this judgment. God accomplishes the judgment of Israel, which it deserved, through this blinding and this hardening. And in the midst of their blindness and hardening, by God's design, they missed what was right in front of their eyes. And we know this, too. Many of them still do. In Isaiah 53, the other passage that John quotes here in John 12, in Isaiah 53, we see Christ as the suffering servant. And listen to what it says Israel would think of him. This is from Isaiah 53. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. And then listen to this. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. This prophecy is Israel's blindness towards Christ. No form, no majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, 
he was despised, and we esteemed him not. This is the Messiah they're talking about. Uh, These do not sound like the characteristics of a people who are ready to delight in their coming king. It sounds like a people who are under judgment because of their unwillingness to believe, whose hearts have been hardened, their eyes having been blinded. And why is this God's design? Why? Isaiah 53 continues. I'll turn to Isaiah 53 with me if you haven't already. Verses 4 through 12. This passage continues to speak of Christ. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. And as we read this, be thinking, why would God allow Israel to be blind and hard-hearted? What is Christ coming to do? He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are Here's that word again, healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, that autonomy of sin. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that's led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered? That he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. This can be no one but Jesus. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. This was God's plan. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. That's our guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. The resurrection has come. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge. Shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. His righteousness being put to our account. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many. He shall divide the spoil with the strong. We are joint heirs with Christ. That is not fair. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Praise God. This is the Christ. And why did Isaiah write all this out for us to read? Because it says in verse 41 of John 12, because Isaiah saw his glory. Whose glory? The king and the suffering servant, Jesus Christ. And because Isaiah saw his glory, Isaiah spoke of him, of Jesus. So Isaiah sees what Israel did not want to, and could not see. Question, do you see the glory of Jesus Christ in these passages? Do you see it? Israel was under judgment and could not see. John 3.18 says, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. 
So God gave Israel exactly what she needed as a nation, as a people, and exactly what she didn't want. Exactly what Israel needed, but what Israel did not want. Israel wanted a different kind of king, the opposite of a suffering servant, a different kind of glory. Well, what did Israel want then? And here in verse 42, we see the contrast of the glory Isaiah saw and proclaimed in the kind of glory Israel and really all unbelievers dead in their trespasses and sins would prefer. A contrast of glories here. Verse 42 in John 12. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, this is their peers, for fear of the Pharisees, They did not confess it. Though they had come to believe that Jesus was, in fact, the Messiah, they acknowledged that, at least intellectually, they would not publicly profess their faith in Christ. And then here's another, so that, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. There was something that they had, something that was precious to them, that they did not want to lose more than they wanted to gain Christ. Do you see that? There was something precious to them that they did not want to lose more than their desire to gain Christ. And what did Jesus say? If you deny me before men, I will deny you before my Father. And why were they being this way? What kept them from admitting that they really thought Jesus was the Christ? Verse 43, for, what's driving their motives? For, they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. That suffering servant has just said earlier in the chapter, I'm going to die. Follow me. And these religious leaders who have come to really believe that this is the Christ are wrestling in their hearts and minds. Glory of God, glory of man. Glory of God, glory of man. The tug of war is there and they are choosing the glory of man. Why? Because they prefer it. It's what they want. And think about how terrible this would be to see the plan of God unfolding, to understand what is happening, and to choose to reject it. Because what this world has to offer looks better in their eyes. Now, I think I've already answered this question, but but is this mention of these leaders believing authentic faith? I think I've already given this one away. Is this authentic faith here in verses 42 through 43? And someone might say, well, I don't know for sure. Uh, This book is written so that you might believe, right? So they're believing. Yet, for one thing, first, we've seen fake false believing before in the Gospel of John. And we say, where? John 2, 23 through 25. And that's that passage that says, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name and they saw the signs that he was doing But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. There was a believing that was an assent to something that was pretty sweet, but it wasn't a repentance and faith. So that's one thing. Two, second, the fact that these verses are held in contrast to how Isaiah responded, 
I think it's a clear indicator that these leaders were not genuinely putting their faith in Christ. They're being compared, contrasted with Isaiah. So that's not good. And third, you can even ask, why would it, why would this even be a question that we're asking in the first place? So to find answer number three, why are we even asking this question in the first place? Why would we even wonder if their faith was true and real and sincere? What's happening in these verses that gives us reason to doubt the genuineness of their faith? And the answer is that their believing did not bear fruit. Followers of Jesus follow Jesus. Those who hear his words are changed. Remember, lest they see with their eyes, understand with their heart, and turn. These people aren't changing. They aren't bearing fruit. They don't love God's glory, and they're denying him before men. They love the glory and praise and acceptance that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. So now, this is in a sense part two of this passage that starts in verse 44. This is now Jesus' final message to the crowd. Jesus' final proclamation to the, to the crowd. Verse 44. And Jesus cried out, he shouted out and said, Whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. This is, of course, God the Father. He says, And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I've come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I've spoken will judge him on that last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment. What to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. End quote. That's Jesus' last speech, if you will, to these crowds. Jesus had just earlier in the chapter departed and hidden himself from the crowd. And then all of a sudden he's back and he cries this out. He didn't suggest, he didn't converse. He cried out in this last message to the masses, to these crowds in Israel. And so what did Jesus just say? And there are eight things. Verse 44. And there's going to be a ton of references here, and I'm going to go through it quickly. So listen fast with me, okay? Verse 44, the first thing Jesus said, whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. If you really believe in the Father, you'll believe in me. John 5.24 Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. John 8.19 If you knew me, you would know my Father also. John 10.37 and 38 If I'm not doing the works of my Father, then don't believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Jesus has taught throughout his public ministry If you believe in me, you are believing in the Father. If you truly believe in the Father, you will believe in me. Number two, verse 45. Whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. John 1.18, no one has ever seen God, the only God who was at the Father's side. He has made him known. John 14.9, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. John 10.30, I and the Father are 
one. Jesus is saying here again, I am God. Number three, from verse 46, I've come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Jesus is the way out of darkness. John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. John 9, 5, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. John 12, 35 and 36, Jesus said to them, the light's among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. He said in verse 36, while you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. Jesus is saying, stop stumbling around in the darkness. Come to me, see, and reflect my light. Number four, from verse 47, if anyone hears my words and does not keep them, hearing Jesus' words should result in keeping Jesus' words. John three thirty six. whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. Jesus' sheep hear his voice, and they follow him. Number five, this is also from verse 47. I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He didn't come to judge. He came to save. John three seventeen. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Remember, the only final judgment that came against the world during the ministry of Jesus Christ was ours. It was ours when the judgment that we deserved was placed on him at the cross. Number six, from verse 48, the one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I've spoken will judge him on the last day. This temporary lack of judgment was exactly that, temporary. To reject Jesus' words is to reject Jesus, and it will result in judgment. John 8, 37. I know that you're offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. John 8, 43. Why do you not understand what I say? It's because you cannot bear to hear my word. And then verse 47 of chapter 8. Whoever is of God hears the word of God. The reason why you do not hear them is because you are not of God. And earlier in John 8, in verses 34 and 35, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. And they do not remain in the house forever because judgment is coming. Number seven, verse 49. I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment what to say and what to speak. Everything Jesus has said and done, everything Jesus has said and done was in obedience to the Father. John 4.34 My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. John 5.30 I can do nothing on my own as I hear I judge and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will but the will of him who sent me. John 6.38 Do you hear a trend? John 6.38 For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will but the will of him who sent me. Jesus is saying I came to do the will of the Father and I have done the will of the Father. And number eight, from verse 50. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. 
Jesus is saying, my obedience to the Father's command and your belief in it will result in eternal life. Again, John 5, 24 is where he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word, believes in him who sent me, has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. John 6, 63, the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. John 6, 68, Lord, to whom shall we go? This is Peter speaking. You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And it isn't just the words in and of themselves that bring eternal life, is it? It's Jesus' obedience to what those words depict which bought us. And as we read last week, which drew us to salvation in him. Jesus' obedience, his sacrifice on the cross, gave us life. And as I speak these words to you even now, if you... If you will believe what I'm saying, what, what this passage is teaching, then guess what? You will have eternal life. Christ obediently provided this for you. Now, did you notice where all of those references came from? When I read all those other passages to go with each one of these eight statements that Jesus cried out to this crowd. You already said it. What book of the Bible is this from? The Gospel of John. Jesus, in this one final paragraph of public exclamation, has just summarized his teachings. And the Apostle John, uh, through the words of Jesus, uh, by the moving of the Holy Spirit, has just summarized the message of this book of the Bible. And what is that message? Jesus is God the Son. He is the Lord. If you believe in Jesus, you believe in God. Jesus perfectly obeyed the Father, something none of us have done. Amen? Uh, The most anticlimactic story, if you think about it. Uh, Jesus' life was not this uh, nail-biting Event where, oh, I hope Jesus doesn't fail this time. Oh, I hope he makes it now. Never. Jesus perfectly fulfilled the will of God. So in way, one way, the most anticlimactic story, and of course, on the other hand, the most climactic, isn't it? Because Jesus gave himself willingly to die in our place as a substitute. The rest of this message, therefore, Jesus is our Lord and our Savior. And now, turn. Turn to him. Repent and be healed. Be saved. Receive this gift from God of eternal life through Christ Jesus. And with that, we've seen the end of Jesus' public ministry. That's it. Everything after here in the Gospel of John is is only with the disciples And then to and through the cross, the burial, the resurrection, and then with the disciples again before he ascends. So, from today's passage, I hope that you're encouraged in in loving the glory of God more than the glory and praise of man. When we look into a text like this and we look deeply into it, there's a lot of glory there, yes? 
God's on the throne. And Christ paid the price of our sin flawlessly. There's a lot of glory there. May we love the glory of God more than the empty glory and empty praise of man. But that's not a struggle that goes away so easily, is it? It's not a struggle that goes away the day we believe by any means. We might even say it's a constant battle. Uh, even, even for me in preaching this message, I have to guard my heart every Sunday. Uh, would I be happier that you liked a sermon and you shake my hand at the back door and say, well, that was great. Does that make me happier than accurately and faithfully conveying the meaning of the text and presenting to you the glorious Savior? And when you want that too, when you want that, the accurate presentation of the text, it just makes it all the harder. Sometimes it's hard to tell which motive won out, isn't it? When we're doing good things. The praise of man is a constantly moving target though, isn't it? It never satisfies. Just like the women, or the, the woman at the well with all of the five husbands that Jesus spoke to the Samaritan woman. Constantly moving targets, never satisfying, empty, broken cisterns. And if you're a Christian, it keeps you from the process of becoming who you are in Christ. No one can serve two masters or 150. So followers of Jesus, follow Jesus. He is your Lord and Savior. Profess your faith in him, even if it gets you kicked out of the synagogue. We're not really worried about that, are we? Or if you're not worried about getting kicked out of the synagogue, insert whatever other thing you might be worried you're going to lose if you don't or if you do obey Jesus. And then church, let's die to ourselves together and follow him. I also hope you're encouraged today that God is a perfect judge and also in complete control. God is able to rightly judge any unbelief and also utilize that unbelief to bring about his perfect will. Mind blown. In our devotions in Hosea this last month, we were reminded, and God said this, I am God and not a man. It's good for us to remember that sometimes, isn't it? Or all the time. The fact that God can do these things is dumbfounding to us because we are human beings. We are men and women. But he is God. He judges justly, and he can even use disobedience to bring about an atonement for our disobedience. Praise God. He alone is worthy of our praise and worship. And finally, as this passage has summarized the message of the Gospel of John, if you are here today and you've never repented of your sin, you've never turned from it, believing in Jesus Christ, believing in his perfect sinless sacrifice on the cross, the payment for your sin, I pray and we pray as a church that you would see the truth of the gospel today, that you'd see it, that you would understand in your heart, that you would turn from your sin and turn to now your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ so that you may be healed, saved, given eternal life. Believe and become a follower of Jesus today, even right now. Let's pray together.
Father, we thank you. I pray that as we, as we come away from this text today, we know that you don't get bigger, but I pray, Lord, that we would see you as bigger than what we saw you before. That we would look at uh, the truth of your sovereignty, your power, your omniscience, the control that you have, and be awed by it, be amazed by it. Lord, that we would be thankful that you have exercised who you are, these characteristics that are true to who you are, that the Christ would be our suffering servant and give him give himself willingly on the cross in our place. God, that this understanding of the gospel and what it cost, what our salvation cost, would stir up in our hearts a deep love for you. That that right thinking and those right desires would change our actions. Lord, that we would not care about getting kicked out of the synagogue or any other place or any other group of people we might think we belong to when who we are, the old man has passed away. You've made a new creation in us in Christ. Behold, the new has come. God, may we live to glorify your name, that we would see your glory and speak of it. And I pray all of this in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen.